this morning, I want to look with you at what the Bible says about the sin of worldliness. And we're going to be focusing on James chapter 4, verse 4, familiar verse. And you're going to want to turn there in your Bibles because even though we're dealing with only this one verse and it's a short, familiar verse, I, I want to sort of show you some things in the context. So turn to James 4, the sin of worldliness. Some of you probably cringed when you heard me say that because it sounds like an old-fashioned word. It's not one you hear preachers talk about very much. In your grandparents or your great-grandparents' generation, preachers talked about worldliness a lot. And that's kind of remarkable because we're talking about, you know, the first half of the 20th century during the Great Depression and two world wars. And looking back, you might think that compared to today, worldliness could not possibly have been a greater temptation for our grandparents and great-grandparents than it is for our generation with all our conveniences and, and the whole world there on your smartphone. So many temptations that assault your eyes and your mind all the time. And we are susceptible to the sin of worldliness, but nobody talks about it anymore. In fact, it's a, it's a sin that most Christians today don't seem very worried about But I would say that in many ways, this is the besetting sin of the church today, and it leads to even worse sins and doctrinal errors. Take the prosperity gospel, for example, which dominates the charismatic movement, and the charismatic movement in turn has begun to dominate mainstream evangelicalism with all of this stress on material prosperity and badges of wealth and luxury and worldliness is the sin that explains why that kind of religion is so popular. Those televangelists are making their appeal directly to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And, and that's what First John 2.16, we read it this morning, that's what it says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the verse just before that says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's one of the first verses in the Bible memory pack that I memorized in my first year as a believer back in 1971. And it's a familiar text for most of us. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And yet, despite the familiarity of that text, Most of us don't really think much or or say much about the dangers of loving the world, worldliness. People today, I think, have very little understanding of what worldliness is and why it's wrong. And as I said, this is not a word that you even hear very often nowadays. And I, I fully realize that, especially for some of you who were born a couple of decades or more after me, the, the idea of worldliness and that word probably sounds quaint and archaic, the kind of word that your old maid aunt would use. And, and she would only use it when she wanted to criticize your music or your clothing or some other aspect of your personal style. And to be honest, my grandparents and great-grandparents' generation probably went overboard criticizing every element of style that they didn't like and every modern innovation that they didn't understand, and they would just say, that's worldly. I once had a woman tell me that I was worldly because I was wearing contact lenses rather than eyeglasses. 
I still wear contact lenses, but now I have to have the glasses to read. She assumed that my only motive for wearing contacts was cosmetic, and in the course of scolding me for my vanity, she said, you shouldn't be ashamed of wearing glasses, she said. I like you the way God made you. And I said, the obvious, God didn't make me with glasses. She said, you know what I mean. And I'm not sure she knew what she meant, but she was adamant about it. She was using the accusation of worldliness as a kind of quick and easy way to discredit every petty thing that she didn't approve of. There was probably too much of that kind of thing in fundamentalist circles maybe 50 or, or 60, 75 years ago. American fundamentalism was definitely infected somewhere along the way with a hypercritical spirit, and it bred contentiousness, and it fostered a kind of sanctimonious, holier-than-thou disdain for others, and it turned people into hypocrites who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's how Jesus described the Pharisee in Luke 18, verse 9. But I would suggest to you we have the opposite problem today. Christians have reacted against hyper-fundamentalism by going as far as possible to the opposite extreme. And when was the last time you heard a leading evangelical preacher mention worldliness as a sin? Christians nowadays don't seem to think this is a very serious or potentially soul-destroying sin. And it's not that the verse is unfamiliar to us. You bring up 1 John 2.15, love not the world, in a circle of your Christian friends, and you're, you're likely to hear a discussion about what that verse doesn't mean. It, it obviously can't mean that we're not supposed to love the people of this world. It isn't telling us to treat unbelievers with disdain. It isn't a call for Christians to court the hostility of the world by posting signs in your yard that mark, mock your neighbor's beliefs. It doesn't give us permission to, to use Twitter or Facebook as a way to insult homosexuals or, or anyone else who's in bondage to sin. And it doesn't mean that we should retreat into a kind of monastic lifestyle. And the truth is, all of that is absolutely true. That is not what this verse means. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, a, verse, a passage we looked at not that long ago, Paul tells the believers in Corinth, I want you, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's telling them, I'm, I'm telling you to separate yourself from Christians who, who walk openly in sin, not to cut yourself off from the world. So we're not supposed to cut ourselves off from the world. We're not supposed to live in Christian enclaves because the world is our mission field. And Mark 16, 15 gives us our Lord's great commission in these words, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And everyone knows that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's John 3.16, obviously, the most famous text in the New Testament. And we're not supposed to hate what God loves, right? And that's true. Love not the world doesn't mean that we should have contempt for the mission field where Christ has sent us to be laborers. But unfortunately, the conversation about that text often stops there. You are not as likely to hear a solid explanation of 
what Scripture does mean when it tells us not to love the world. And as a result, in the church today, it's pretty rare to meet Christians who appreciate what a deadly danger the sin of worldliness actually poses. They've never seriously contemplated the fact that worldliness is a sin. And in fact, there are Christians, including some Christian leaders, who are, I think, sinfully obsessed with the whims and entertainments of the world. Chasing the latest fad is their favorite pastime, and they seem to think that they can harness whatever's popular in the world, harness that as an evangelistic strategy. And so they work hard to adopt all of the badges of worldly style and the key elements of worldly wisdom, and, and they crave popularity and worldly approval. And they may try to convince you that a neck tattoo of a Bible verse or a, a religious symbol is more effective for reaching people today than, than a real testimony. That is the lowbrow form of evangelical worldliness. There is also a highbrow flavor, evangelical elitists, who are driven by an unhealthy craving for academic renown. They become so desperate to win scholarly street cred that they end up apostatizing in the process. You see it happen again and again. And closely related to that brand of worldliness is the current evangelical preoccupation with celebrity status, you know, a yearning for fame and popularity, a craving to be noticed by other people like the Pharisees, of whom Jesus said they do all their deeds to be seen by others. But unlike the Pharisees, today's evangelical fame seekers don't necessarily try even to make a show of public piety. That's not what they want to be noticed for. They're hungry for the world's applause, and the world today isn't impressed by religion. Jesus said to the Pharisees, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, they wanted this world's praise and recognition. They got it, and that's all they're going to get for all of their fame-seeking. That is worldliness in its most narcissistic form. And then there are those who think, you know, we can save the world if we just can win enough elections, and they throw themselves into politics And by doing that, they learn the art of compromise. And then they barter away their convictions or their testimony in exchange for political advantage. I think maybe nothing is more worldly than the notion that Caesar's authority might be harnessed by the church and put to good use if we could just elect the right guy. Very few Christians are able to devote themselves completely to politics and at the same time maintain an uncompromising commitment to Christ. It's a hard thing to do. And after all, the most pressing priority for any politician is to win votes in the election. And so worldliness thrives among evangelicals who are sold out political activists. And the evangelical movement has basically been commandeered by groups of these people who think that if we can just get the world to think that we're cool or sophisticated or worldly wise, then worldly people are going to be more open to Jesus. If they just liked me better, they'd be more drawn to Jesus. That is the distilled essence of sinful worldly-mindedness, and that is precisely what Scripture forbids. Don't be surprised, brothers, 
that the world hates you. That's John, 1 John 3.13. And listen to what Jesus himself said in John 15, verses 18 through 20. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, the idea there is not make the world hate you or even that maybe it will hate you and maybe it won't. The clear message is that if you are faithful to Christ, the world will certainly hate you. You don't have to do anything to make that happen. Just be loyal to Christ. If you love Christ, they already hate what you stand for. According to Jesus, we don't belong to this world anyway. He he also said in his high priestly prayer that he himself is not of this world. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, You will be hated by all men for my name's sake. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And the Apostle Paul affirms that idea in 2 Timothy 3, 12, where he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a certainty. So you're not being faithful to Christ if your aim is to fit into the fraternity of those who hate him. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's our text, James 4, verse 4. And it's a verse that I think is even more strongly worded than 1 John 2.15, love not the world. James is so emphatic that it's really difficult to sidestep or to explain away what he's saying. And so this is the text I want to focus on, James 4, verse 4. Here's the whole verse from the NIV. I never quote from the NIV because I hate it, but it's good here. <laughs> NIV, James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, let me, let me speak bluntly. I, I am convinced that the majority of evangelicals today simply don't believe the truth of that verse. Friendship with the world, they've made that their primary goal. If you were to compile an up-to-date list of the 15 largest, most influential megachurches, the most crowded assemblies in America on a Sunday like this, and then analyze the common features of their ministry philosophy, you will discover that most, if not all of them, seem to think that the only effective way to attract an audience today is to give unchurched people a worldly spectacle with noise and flashing lights and a smoke machine. You have to draw your message from blockbuster movies instead of from the Bible, and you have to embrace the world's music and its fashions, and don't ever mention negative-sounding themes like sin and righteousness and judgment. But according to Jesus in John 16, 8, the only business the Holy Spirit has with the world outside the church is to convince unbelievers concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And you would probably never know that at all 
if everything you knew about Christianity came from the typical 21st century evangelical megachurch, you'd be hearing motivational talks and movie reviews and lots of storytelling. And sermonizing like that has left the church susceptible to worldly values and passions and lusts. And that's a major reason why worldliness is the besetting sin of the contemporary evangelical movement. And to be completely frank with you, I can't exclude myself from that judgment, and neither should you, because we live in a culture that relentlessly courts our participation in all kinds of evil. And in fact, secular society is now literally demanding our acquiescence to ungodly activities and unbiblical opinions and anti-Christian values. You see it on the news every day. And they do this by overtly appealing to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life through entertainment, through advertising, through the internet, and every imaginable medium. Our affections are being courted by the world, and we're all susceptible to that, and we don't do enough to resist the pressure. Some Christians today will gladly go along with and even celebrate literally anything the unbelieving world is currently enthralled with. You know, the contemporary Christian music industry is teeming with artists who are so desperate to find worldly acceptance that they have either openly disavowed or or flagrantly disregarded what the Bible teaches about marital fidelity and biblical purity. And it's not only Christians in the public eye who are tempted to imitate worldly lifestyles and worldly values. I'm sure that you feel the pressure to jump on board with whatever is currently trending. But as Christians, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be distinctively holy, and you can't do that unless you put the world and all of its values in their proper place. And James's words in our text are aimed at people like you and me. Notice, James is going here for clarity, not diplomacy. This is the kind of rhetoric that causes today's guardians of evangelical tone, you know, to have fits of apoplexy. Listen to what he says. You adulterous people, he says. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. This is not gentle language. So let's look at it, and let's look briefly at the context of James 4, because there are some key themes that run through the first 12 verses here. One theme, for example, is war. That's a literal translation, but he's not talking about literal armed conflict. This is not about land wars between nations. The ESV gets the proper sense of it. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then in the middle of verse 2, you murder, you fight, and you quarrel. Verse 4, our text mentions enmity with God. And then verse 6, God opposes the proud. And verse 7, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And the idea through all of that is a fierce conflict that's going on, a struggle to obtain something that we covet, and it's a conflict between two absolutely incompatible value systems. And the root issue in all of those conflicts, he says, is lust, illicit desire. Verse 1, your passions are at war within you. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And by the way, he has in mind there not just literal murder, 
But the, that whole class of sins that Jesus said is morally tantamount to murder, including hatred and anger and bitterness and even deliberately insulting epithets and, and slander and malicious gossip and all of that. All of those things are rooted in wrong desires. And continuing with verse 2, he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And then he turns to the issue of prayer. You, you can trace his thinking if you follow the thread. What's the answer to unfulfilled desires? Prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. But pray for things that you can have legitimately. Don't be praying for the mere fulfillment of your fleshly lusts. That's praying amiss. And by the way, as I go through this, it occurs to me, there are some uncanny parallels between James 4 and Matthew 7, and it's almost like the Sermon on the Mount is reverberating in James's mind as he writes this. You know, Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. So in other words, don't judge other people unrighteously. And James picks up that same theme in our chapter, verses 11 and 12. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, who are you to judge your neighbor? Matthew 7 is also where Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you for everyone who asks receives. And James, I think, has that very promise in mind when he says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're trying to fulfill those lusts of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, and so on. He's saying your wrong desires become a hindrance to your prayer life, and so there's that theme of evil desire. So now, get this. Evil desire is the very heart of the problem with worldliness. 1 John 2.16 again. For everything that belongs to the world, everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. So all of those things have to do with illicit desire. And this passage covers what seems like a wide array of issues, quarrels and fightings, evil desires and covetousness, a misguided, lust-driven prayer life. And then now in our text, he's actually drawing all of those themes together into one idea, and it's the sin of worldliness. So he distills every category of evil desire that he's mentioned into the picture of friendship with the world. That's what it boils down to. Only an earthly-minded, self-absorbed worldling would provoke unnecessary conflict in the community of faith, you know, and desire what he, he can't righteously have, or pray for things to be spent on illicit passion. All of those sins are related, and they feed one another. And think about this. James knew that these people were worldly because of the way they prayed, he doesn't call them worldly because they shopped at Goldman Sachs. He calls them worldly because of how they prayed. He verbally lays into them. You adulterous people, you wretched wannabe worldlings, he says. You, don't you understand what a vile sin it is to court the favor and friendship of the world? Jesus didn't send us out into a neutral culture to try and make friends with the whole world. He sent us into an incorrigibly hostile world to echo his call to repentance 
and to make disciples of those who respond to the call. We're supposed to summon those people out of the world rather than trying to fit ourselves in with the rest of the crowd. And we can't do any of that apart from God's grace. But, James says, verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Does it sound like the Beatitudes are still reverberating in his head? I'm telling you, this is like his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying that the biblical answer to worldliness is humility. Humility is the polar opposite of worldly pride in one's lusts and lifestyle. He's talking about the kind of humility that resists the taunts and temptations of the devil. But it's a humility that willingly accepts the contempt and the derision of a hostile world. It's also the kind of profound humility that causes us to be wretched and mourn and weep. So this is gospel humility that he's calling for. It is the natural product of authentic repentance. Now, it's obvious from James, James's tone here that the people he's writing to are lacking in the features of godly humility. They're so devoid of submission to God and and purity of heart, and single-minded devotion to Christ that it seems like James is not even fully convinced that they're genuinely converted. He calls them sinners. He rebukes them as sharply as possible for their worldliness. And it may be that those people, like so many of today's typical, casual, church-going, self-styled evangelicals, had never really considered what a vile sin it is to love the world and the things that are in the world. And so he describes the sin of worldliness in the clearest and most explicit language possible. And from this verse, verse 4, our verse, we can deduce three reasons why worldliness ranks among the most evil of all sins. If you're taking notes or if you're looking for an outline in my message, make sure you get these three points. Three reasons worldliness is a sin of the very worst order. Reason number one, it's an act of spiritual adultery. Now, this seems like quite an abrupt transition from verse 3 to verse 4. Remember, the subject at hand in verse 3 is the question of why their prayers aren't being answered. You do not have because you do not ask. You, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You aren't praying the way Jesus taught us to pray. You're asking for all the wrong things, and Jesus' promise, everyone who asks receives, does not apply to carnal prayers. So if your prayers are driven by, a, by your own lusts rather than by a zeal for God's glory, if you aren't even asking God for the things that Jesus taught us to ask for, then you're not really praying in Jesus' name, are you? And then That's all implied in what he said. I obviously embellished it a bit, but that's what he means. And then there's this sudden, shocking, sharp rebuke. You adulterous people, he says. And, you know, compared to our postmodernist ideas of what civil discourse ought to sound like, 
That just seems a little bit over the top, doesn't it? I mean, I wouldn't say that to you. But think about this. Just a few verses later, verse 11, he's going to say, Do not speak against one another, brethren. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Really? He just called them adulterous people. And now he says, don't judge your neighbor. Think about this. Both of those texts are inspired and inerrant scripture. And that means that however you seek to apply verses 11 and 12, you cannot interpret them in a way that would rule out the kind of harsh rebuke James himself has already delivered back in verse 4. And it is a harsh rebuke. If if the change in tone between verses 3 and 4 doesn't make you sit up and take notice, then you're not listening very carefully. He goes from admonishing them about the deficiencies of their prayer life to this angry-sounding accusation of adultery. And it is harsh. It's purposely harsh. The harshness of the expression, you adulterers, gives us, I think, a true measure of the seriousness of the sin he's rebuking them for, worldliness. And by the way, that whole phrase at the start of verse 4, you adulterous people, that's just one word in the Greek text, and it is a feminine noun, adulteresses. That's how he says it. A literal translation of the verse would be adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Now, even though he uses the feminine form of this noun, he is not just singling out women. There's no suggestion that he has any specific individuals in mind. His point is that the church is the bride of Christ, and so Christians who are unfaithful to Christ are comparable to an unfaithful wife, an adulteress. So he's writing to people who had let their own worldly desires govern what they were praying for. And let's face this honestly, all of us deserve this rebuke to one degree or another. It steps on all of our toes. He's speaking to all of us. Now, why the sudden shift from the defects of a selfish prayer life to the subject of worldliness. Well, remember, everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. So worldliness is driven by lust and carnal, self-serving, self-centered pride, just like the misguided prayers that he's talking about. Those prayers are an expression of a worldly heart. Self-indulgent prayer requests are just that, an expression of a worldly heart. Perhaps nothing is more worldly than asking God to fulfill desires that are fueled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's lifestyle. And do not let it escape your notice that virtually all American televangelists are teaching people precisely this way. They aggressively encourage their listeners to pray for material wealth and expensive cars and other tokens of a worldly self-indulgent lifestyle. There really is no grosser sin in my judgment. If you're a Christian who, who pretends to be passionately opposed to the sins of secular culture, but you never raise a peep of protest about the worldliness and the spiritual corruption that is broadcast on the religious television networks night and day, I don't know how you can live with the hypocrisy of that. 
because those televangelists are actually worse, worse sinners. They're doing things that are worse than the people who are lobbying for, you know, being able to groom your children or whatever. Any sin you can think of that's gross in secular culture is not as bad as the stuff that is peddled by people and supported by people who profess to be Christians on Christian television. And James will have none of it. He equates worldliness in the Christian community with the sin of serial adultery. This is a metaphor. A worldly Christian, he's saying, is like a bride who sleeps around, you know, plays the harlot, someone who is pledged to Christ and should love Christ but loves the world instead is behaving like a spiritual prostitute. And that would be a metaphor that would be familiar to James's Jewish readers because the Old Testament repeatedly says that Israel's infidelity to God was actually a form of harlotry. And some of the language about this in the Old Testament is very strong, almost too explicit for children's ears, frankly. But here's one comparatively mild example from Jeremiah chapter 3. God is recounting to the prophet how the southern kingdom, Judah, didn't learn the lesson she should have gained from the judgment of the northern kingdom, Israel, who'd already been sent into exile. Jeremiah 3, 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, that's the northern kingdom, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah, that's the southern kingdom, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. It's talking about spiritual adultery with idols. Description of people who worshipped idols that were made of stone and wood. They committed adultery, that is, spiritual adultery, with stone and tree. And James is echoing that principle. He's saying people who love the world, who court the world's love in return, they are playing like whores with the world. And if you find that metaphor shocking, remember that Jesus repeatedly used that same terminology in his condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 12, 39, and then again in Matthew 16, verse 4, when a group of these spiritual phonies came to him and demanded that he perform a sign for them, he called them and their followers an evil and adulterous generation. Because there's nothing more worldly than demanding visible proof when you know you already have sufficient grounds to believe. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So worldliness is serious, a serious sin, because it is an act of spiritual adultery. Now, if you're taking notes, here's a second reason worldliness is a sin of the very worst order. Number two, it's an expression of blatant hostility. It's an expression of blatant hostility, specifically to love the world, is to be hostile to God. You can't be friends with the world 
and make friends with God at the same time, and that should be obvious to any believer. James says his readers ought to have been fully aware of this principle. Do you not know, he says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? How could you not know that? Worldliness is nothing more than an expression of contempt for what God loves and an expression of affection for what God hates. Now, again, there is a true and vital sense in which God loved the world. He loves the human race because, after all, he made us in his own image. He intervened to save humanity from utter destruction by redeeming a remnant. And so the enmity that is described here is not personal malice from God towards people, the people of the world per se. God does, however, abominate the way fallen people think and what they do and what they believe and what they love and what they desire. He hates all of that. In other words, God has no love at all for the world's treasures or its amusements or its honors. The values and ambitions and longings of this world, all of them are evil, as 1 John 2.16 says. The cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes and their boasting, God hates those things. That's how Genesis 6 verse 5 describes the world God hates. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then in this one great anthropopathic statement of Scripture, verse 5 says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And even after the flood, as As soon as Noah emerged from the ark and made an offering, Scripture tells us, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, he wasn't wasn't making an exception for Noah from this rule that we're all totally depraved. Lamentations 3.22 says, It is only because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. In other words, we deserve to be consumed. We deserve to be judged. We're not because only because of God's mercies. And meanwhile, this fallen world has set itself against God, and He Himself is against everything this fallen world cherishes. So it's folly to think that we could domesticate our culture and and win people to Christ by trying to make friends with a fallen world. It's even more foolish to think that the Bible gives us any kind of mandate to win the admiration of the world. So that even though lots of postmodern evangelicals think that cultivating some kind of friendship with the world is a smart church growth strategy, to think that way is to oppose God. It's that serious. And more than that, to try to make peace or forge friendly relations with an evil system that is openly hostile to God is to show contempt for the one who most deserves our love. And this principle applies to all of the kings of this world, all their philosophies, their values, their belief systems, everything about the world system, right up to the chief ruler of the world system, who is the devil himself, all of these are to some degree or another openly and aggressively hostile to God and hostile to the truth itself. And Jesus repeatedly called Satan the ruler of this world. 
The Apostle Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 4.4 is even stronger. He calls Satan the god of this world. And 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan has a stranglehold on this world, and he is at war with God. So we are like Israel at the foot of Sinai when Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. As Christians, we are supposed to be on the Lord's side. We're at war, and it's a serious cosmic conflict. Ephesians 6, verse 10, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And furthermore, this is a battle we are called to fight. We're not to be spectators or commentators or referees. It's a war that cannot be resolved through diplomacy. Now, it's true that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That's 2 Corinthians 10.4. We don't fight with literal swords or acts of violence and terrorism. This is an ideological battle. It's a war of values and belief systems and worldviews. And our role in this battle is to tear down the philosophical strongholds that the world keeps erecting, belief systems and false ideas that are designed to keep people in bondage. This is the kind of fighting we do, described in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it's a war about truth and opinions and belief systems and arguments, not a flesh and blood war, but a campaign to liberate people from the bondage of corrupt values and evil beliefs and especially the wicked demonic doctrines that dominate this fallen world. And we cannot do that through diplomacy. We certainly can't do it by adopting as many of those ideas as we think we can sanctify with biblical terminology. And you can't accomplish victory in this battle by seeking friendly relations with a system that is under the control of the devil. To think that as Christians we could make friends with this fallen world's beliefs and values is an expression of blatant hostility towards God. It takes a sinful, rebellious heart even to flirt with that kind of thinking. And that's a third reason why worldliness is so full of evil mischief If you're taking notes, here's where we are. First, worldliness is an act of spiritual adultery. Second, it is an expression of blatant hostility. Third, and finally, worldliness is a sin of the very worst order because, number three, it is a crime of diabolical treachery. Look at the last phrase of our verse. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Worldliness is a deliberate act of treason against God. If you're a Christian, you won't become a friend of the world by accident. The world doesn't make friends with Christians. Christians have to make friends with the world. And in order to do that, the world requires some degree of disloyalty to Christ. And if you refuse to betray Christ, you cannot be friends with a world that hates him. We owe Christ 
full and uncompromising loyalty. One of the wonderful realities about the work of Christ in our salvation is that he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. That's Galatians 1.4 or Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We're strangers and exiles on the earth. We owe heaven our full allegiance. Hebrews 12.22, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God who is judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And so, in a real and spiritual sense, God has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2.6. That's where we belong, heaven. That's where our loyalty ought to be, to heaven. And therefore, Paul says in Colossians 3, if you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We are, in other words, called and commanded to be heavenly-minded. You know, I'm sure you've heard that familiar expression, the complaint that some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. And I suppose that there is a, a brand of extreme religiosity that is practiced by religious quacks and impostors of whom, you know, that little aphorism might be a good description. I've known a few people here and there who practice a kind of faux piety that comes across like a a goofy brand of otherworldliness. But seriously, does anyone think it's a major problem among today's evangelicals that we're too heavenly-minded? With our faces buried in our cell phones and our minds glued to whatever's trending on Twitter and our televisions programmed to TiVo or, and, and, and record whatever, you know, is popular on HBO while, while we watch entertainment tonight. Is that still on? You see how out of step I am. But a more fitting description of the average evangelical today would be that he's so earthly-minded that he's of no good to either heaven or the church. Our constant fixation on every whim or novelty that is currently trending in the world, that is a dangerous pursuit. Fad chasing is not and never has been a road that leads to Christ, but it's a a devilish ruse that points us away from heaven while ignoring every instrument of sanctification and all the essential means of grace. And if you have endlessly or carelessly allowed yourself to be seduced and diverted by all of this world's noise and self-promotion, you are on a dangerous path. But you can repent and recover your first love, and you urgently need to do that. If, on the other hand, you've willfully pursued harmony or comradeship with this world, if you wish to be a friend of the world, if you choose to be a friend of the world, if you purposely make yourself a friend of the world, that is an act of spiritual treason. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The same way that you cannot serve God and mammon, 
in the very same way and for the very same reasons you cannot be friendly toward the world and do the work of God at the same time. No one can serve two masters. Demas, you know, is one of the saddest characters in the New Testament. When Paul wrote Philemon, Demas was actually serving as one of five key people on Paul's missionary team. He names them Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Some stellar names there. Paul mentions them by name in verse 24 of Philemon. And Demas's name even precedes Luke in the order that Paul lists them. And he refers to Demas as one of my fellow workers. Demas is still with Luke when Paul writes to the Colossians, because just before signing off in Colossians 4.14, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So here's a guy who was a fellow worker with a leading apostle, a close companion with Luke, who wrote two of the longest books in the New Testament. He was at the heart of the action while Paul was at the peak of his missionary activity. And even after Paul was imprisoned, Demas remained with him. Philemon was written from prison, and Demas was close by. So he must have been a gifted worker to have earned a place like that in Paul's inner circle, traveling with him, seeing the evidence of God's hand on Paul's ministry. Demas had every advantage. He had the very best teacher in the early church as his personal mentor. And for a long time, he seemed faithful enough. But when we last meet Demas in the New Testament... It's at the end of Paul's life. Paul is awaiting his execution. He is still faithful. He's still encouraging Timothy to stay at the task. And in the closing chapter of the last epistle Paul ever wrote, we read this, 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 11. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. I've always thought... 2 Timothy, Paul's closing epistle, ends on a sad note. Paul records what happened when he was put on trial, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. But Paul goes on to say this. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And furthermore, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it sounds sad on the surface, but Paul isn't sad. He's ready for ultimate victory. We know Paul's going to be okay no matter what. Verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And so while at first glance it's sad for Paul that he was abandoned by Demas and left to stand alone, the, the apostle punctuates that chapter with so much triumph that we don't need to feel bad about the last chapter in Paul's life. We can, in fact, be encouraged by it. Paul's life did not end in tragedy, but in great triumph. On the other hand, it's a different story for Demas. The most profoundly sad character in 2 Timothy 4 is Demas, the worldling who had every opportunity to serve Christ and suffer for Christ's sake alongside the Apostle Paul, but he squandered every advantage he ever enjoyed for a mess of worldly pottage. If he had remained faithful, 
he would have enjoyed eternal honor in heaven, but he gave it up for the opportunity to be a friend of this present world. Was Demas a true Christian who fell into prolonged disobedience, or was he a false believer like Judas? I'll have to leave that judgment to God because I don't know what became of Demas after 2 Timothy. I hope he repented. I hope he was a real believer who ultimately recovered his first love. But if not, his, if his forsaking Paul was an act of total apostasy, if this meant he was turning away from Christ in settled unbelief in order to be a friend with the world, then there is no hope for him. 1 John 2.19 speaks about people like that when it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain that they're not all of us. There are Judases in the midst of every church, and they turn away. Notice that verse that I just read from, from 1 John 2 comes just four verses after John says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Unbridled worldliness, like apostasy, is evidence that a person lacks real faith. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Demas's sin does seem to have a lot in common with Judas's treachery. This was sheer betrayal. Worldliness is, after all, a sin of the very worst order. It's a crime of diabolical treachery. By the way, Demas is the polar opposite of Moses. You know, Moses grew up as Pharaoh's adopted son. He stood in line to inherit all of the wealth and power of Pharaoh, but Moses gave up every privilege the world had to offer choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. The world will promise you wealth and privileges and fame and honor, but the true pathway to eternal glory is the one Moses took, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of worldly sin. And that's what makes worldliness so utterly foolish. Everything you might be tempted to love in this world, everything the world uses to bait you, all of it will decay and it will be summarily destroyed so that in comparison to eternity, this world is far too short-lived and you know, susceptible to rust and moth to warrant all of the interest and attachment that the world demands from us. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a practical way to cultivate a heart that is not unduly attached to this world. Simply invest in heaven. Don't squander your resources on earthly goods, but lay up your treasure in heaven by using your resources in ways that honor Christ. Support your church. Give to the poor. Donate resources to missionary works where the gospel is being proclaimed. And I'm not asking you to give anything to me. I'm telling you, you need to use your resources to advance the work of the gospel and benefit your needy neighbors. 
And by doing that, you invest in heaven. You can figure out for yourselves the specifics of whom to give to. But the point is that this world and all its wealth is not worth hanging on to. Just a chapter after our text, James goes after rich people whose worldliness is seen in the way they hoard their wealth. In fact, turn the page if necessary and look at the beginning of James 5. Come now, he says, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And he goes on like that. Now, I'm no socialist, and, and James himself is not arguing that the government should undertake to redistribute everybody's wealth, but he does suggest that Christians who hoard their resources are guilty of a sinful attachment to a world that is decaying and passing away. In the end of James 5, verse 3, you have laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, there's not enough time left before the return of Christ to warrant the hoarding of our worldly goods. I think I've quoted 1 John 2, 15 and 16 probably 10 times already. Now listen to verse 17. He says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Romans 13, verse 12, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine. The time is short. And if time was short at the end of the first century, Christ's return is 2,000 years closer now. So it's folly to attach our affections to this world. Verse 31, the present form of the world is passing away. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. So nothing, absolutely nothing in this swiftly passing world should ever overwhelm our love for Christ. If you're not a believer, you're already at war with God, whether you're consciously aware of it or not. Romans 8, 7, and 8 says, The mind that is set on the flesh, this is the unredeemed person's mind, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you are here without Christ, without faith, the only cure for you is to turn to Christ in faith. And in so doing, you will turn from your love of sin and worldliness. And if you call yourself a Christian, but you're driven by a yearning for the favor of this world, if you think you can be the kind of Christian you ought to be and be universally beloved and by both believers and non-believers, and most of all, if you purposely stifle your testimony and keep your faith a secret in order to, to keep from losing the respect of the world, then there is something seriously deficient in what you think is faith. And you need to examine yourself to see whether you're truly in the faith. Now, I hope you don't revel in the world's hostility. There's something seriously wrong with you if you find glee in provoking people's hatred. I hope you strive for peace with everyone and, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's Hebrews twelve fourteen, And here's Romans twelve eighteen. If, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, so that Christians are not called to be full-time provocateurs. We are called to proclaim the truth about Christ, though, and that will provoke the hostility of the world. 
And we must not back away or silence the truth in the face of that hostility. One of the great promises of the gospel is peace with God, Romans 5.1. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith alone, we lay hold of justification, full pardon for our sins, and a right standing with God, and we are at peace with Him through Christ. But the world will thereafter view you as a traitor and an enemy. So you need to brace yourself for that. The world put Christ to death. Christ himself did not shy away in shame or retaliate in anger. And he left that example and instructed his people to follow in his steps, 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, in that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Go thou and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for having cold hearts and wandering affections. May we see this fallen world for what it is. It's a spiritually dangerous realm that is cursed and corrupted by sin. And for us as believers, this world is just a fleeting testing ground for our faith. So keep us faithful. Never let the fire of love that we had when we first knew Christ grow dim or burn low. And as we look forward to that day when this world will be fully redeemed and remade, when heaven and earth will be united in perfection for all of eternity, help us to love what you love and value what all heaven esteems worthy. And until that time and through all eternity, may Christ always take first place in our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.